Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and worship you and look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead as we study this section and see what you would want us to see from this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 13. We're going to start at verse 28. So far in this chapter, we've seen Tamar be raped by Ammon. David didn't do anything in return for it, even though he knew about it. And Absalom has been seething with anger ever since his sister was raped by his half-brother. And we left off with last, last time we looked at him, and Absalom's getting ready to throw this big party because he sheared his sheep, and, which is normal. And he invited all the king's sons, and he invited King David, and he invited Ammon. Uh, David is asked, asked him, why do you want Ammon to come? when you haven't talked to him for, you know, for this whole two years. And you go, you know, it just says, well, we want the whole family there. And that's where we left off with uh, this chapter so far. So verse 28. Now Absalom had commanded his servant, saying, Mark you now when Ammon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say unto him, smite Ammon, then kill him. Fear not, for I have commanded you. Be courageous and be valiant. And the servants of Absalom did unto Ammon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and every man got him up upon his mule and fled. All right, so here we have, in the middle of this party, cold-blooded, premeditated murder. And remember, we've said in the past, you know, if he had killed, his, killed Ammon way back two years before, right after the, after the rape, he probably could have made a case for, you know, I'm defending my sister's honor, you know, uh, and been able to get off, you know, get off just just as we could. If you defend yourself, you can get off, you know, you can get off even if you kill somebody. But this is two years later, and this is this is premeditated. You know, he says, "When I give you the sign, when when he's been married, in other words, drunk, you know, when when he's feeling no pain, we're gonna we're gonna kill him." So not only is he killing him in cold blood. He is waiting to the time when he is basically defenseless. You know, yeah, guy, you know, servants, when he gets to the point where he can't even see you coming, then we'll kill him. This is a major offense that he's getting ready to, to occur. Uh, remember, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So even at this, Absalom's way beyond the time for, for paying re revenge. This is cold-blooded murder and you know, he tells his servants, you know, hey, I'm, the, I'm basically saying, I'm the prince, I tell you to kill him, I will, I will, I will cover you. If anything happens, I will, I will be the one that uh, covers you. And he says, be courageous. All right, so get out there and, and do what you have to do. And this is something that is kind of an interesting thing because Absalom's been planning this murder for two years. He has not talked to Ammon for two years. I mean, remember back a while ago, you didn't say any good or bad to Ammon. He hasn't talked to Ammon. And remember, we talked about this last week. You know, he asked David to send Abs Ammon to, the, to, the, to, the, uh, to this party. And you know, David did say, why should he go with you? you know, why? You know, David, David suspects something. I don't think he suspects murder. That, that, that is a little bit beyond what he's, he's thinking, but he's thinking that something's going to happen. Uh, and sure enough, it does. And in the middle of this feast, 
they kill Ammon, and it says all the king's sons arose and, and ran away. I don't know what they were afraid of at this point, you know, uh, being accused of being accessories, thinking that Absalom's totally lost his mind and he's going to go after them. Uh, but this is, is a common thing. If somebody dies near somebody, people generally scatter. All right? Uh, and I don't know if they expected they were going to die or what, they, what their expectations were. But they scatter. All of David's sons disappear. So we have Ammon dead, Absalom there, and the sons of David running. Probably fearing for their lives. They're, you know, they're... We see here that many of David's sons don't seem to be as brave as David. <laughs> you would think if David had been here, he would have, you know, come to defense and, and you know, drawn his sword. David's sons run. You know, I guess they were spoiled rotten princes that didn't, didn't really uh, know what it was to battle. You know, they, they've been raised in a rich home with, with luxury, and they run for their lives. And they may not have wanted to have anything to do with protecting Ammon either, because we've talked about this. Ammon's rape of Tamar could not be a secret. David knew about it. Absalom knew about it. Ammon's uh, servants knew about it. I'm sure that Tamar wasn't exactly quiet about, about this because she is you know, put on sackcloth and ashes. She's no longer wearing the, the garment of the, the virgin. So everybody in the palace knows about this. His sons may know about this as well, and they may be thinking, well, if he's going to do this to us, do we want to be party of this? What is, what is dad going to do if we just stick around this party after this murder? And who knows what dad's going to do, because dad did not defend the honor of his daughter. He did not go after Ammon. The law said that Ammon was worthy of death. Okay, because remember, the, the law says that if somebody raped somebody, they were either to marry that person or be executed. Okay, no, no in between. One or the other. Neither one of these things happened to Ammon. He wasn't executed and he wasn't forced to marry Tamar. So he apparently has gotten away scot-free, at least in his mind. And everybody else's mind. And this is why we keep coming back to this. Sin always has consequences. It may take a while for the consequences to come, but there are consequences. Now, these consequences aren't necessarily from God, but you know, in, in Absalom's mind, he's thinking that he's, he's right. This man deserves to die. The penalty for his crime is death. Not supposed to be two years later, but that it is the penalty for the, for the crime was death. And he executed him. In his mind, he's executed. I'm prince. I've executed dad. The, the supreme judge did not, did not execute him as he's supposed to. I'm going to go ahead and execute him. Uh, I'm giving him good, good motives. I don't know if these motives were there or not. He may just be looking for revenge. I, you know, he, he dishonored my sister, or I'm going to take care of him. Seems how dad won't. And so we see here great panic. Um, it's not a mass killing, but the reaction is the same thing. Everybody's running for their lives. And again, I wonder, did, did Ammon have a guard with him? Because in our day and age, we have the Secret Service protecting the, the president, his wife, his children, the vice president, you know, down the, down the roads. They would have had somebody responsible for, for protecting. Maybe, one, maybe only one or two, but there was somebody responsible for protecting Ammon. Uh, 
might have gotten kind of loose because here he is with the king's sons. I mean, okay, this is, this is someplace we can just let them go. It's, it's not that big a deal. This is, this is family. There's no, no trouble in this. In, in no, no danger, no, no trouble here because this is family. They should have known better because it's Absalom and Ammon, but, you know, and I'm just assuming there was some kind of guard there and they, might, they let down their guard as well. Verse 30, And it came to pass while they were in the way that tidings came to David, saying, Absalom has slain all the king's son, and there is not one of them left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all the servants stood by him with their clothes rent. And Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother, answered and said, Let not the Lord suppose that they have all slain, that they have slain all the young men, uh, uh, young men, the king's sons, for Ammon only is dead, for by the appointment of Absalom has this been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. All right. David gets word that all of his sons are dead. This is, this is devastating news to any, any parent. You know, all your kids are dead. Now, it finds out it's not a true statement, but, you know, how fast does news travel? The news traveled back to David faster than his sons could get back to the palace. And it's wrong, like most quick news. A lot of times quick news is the wrong news. David gets a message that all his sons are dead. Now, you, we think about this. David tears his garments and puts sackcloth on, and his servants tear their garments. But put ourselves in David's position. He suspected something was wrong when Absalom asked for Ammon to go, and he didn't stop Ammon from going. So David's going to feel a little guilty already. He didn't stop Ammon from going. Furthermore, go back two years earlier, and he knows that he should have punished Ammon, at least exiled him at the very least and didn't do nothing. So he's going, okay, Absalom's murdered all my kids because he's mad at me for not defending his sister's honor. David is guilt-ridden at this point. Ammon, as far as he's concerned, has now wiped out all of his kids. And if we think about that, you know, and then add to that what Nathan had said to him because of his sin with Bathsheba, he said, the sword shall never depart your house. Okay, so now as far as he's concerned, he is guilty. You know, he is, he is as guilty as, as Ammon in this in his mind. He should have stopped Am, uh, Absalom, Ammon from going because he knew Absalom was going to have bad things in store for him. He should have punished Ammon according to the laws, and he realizes that this is all my fault. Imagine, the curse that was put on David. The sword will never depart your family. Every time something bad happened to his family, David's going to remember back, this is my fault. Now, it's bad enough when we make it our fault, and it's not our fault. Okay? But in David's case, he could really truthfully say, all this death in my family is my fault. God's, this is God's curse. I'm the king, God cursed me and my family be with the sword. I didn't die as I was supposed to, because remember when David had his adulterous affair with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, he was guilty of two capital offenses. So he has already gotten God's grace, which might be why he's able to be gracious to Ammon. All right? 
He goes, I deserve death. I'm not going to give Ammon death. Yes, what he did was awful. Yes, what he did was bad. He forgot the fact, though, that he faced a penalty for his sin that he did not apply to Ammon. Ammon should have had some penalty from David. If it's not going to be death, and it's not going to be the murder, at least be exiled from the, from the palace, something, something should have been done to say there's a consequence for your sin, son. David didn't give him a consequence. He just gave him grace. Even when God gives us grace as Christians and doesn't give us the ultimate penalty for our sin, there are still consequences for our sin. Ammon thought he'd gotten away with this. Everybody thinks David, uh, that Ammon's got away with this. And how many times do we look around at somebody and say, God, how is it that they're getting away with it? You know, look how bad they're treating people. They've stolen, they've stolen, they've cheated, they've, you know, manipulated, they maybe even murdered or, or, or committed rape. And God, they have not been punished. God says, consequences will come. And at the very least, we want to understand that nobody ever gets away with sin. Because at the very least, they know they've sinned. And they know that they deserve punishment. And they, every time they think about that event, and when you have a major sin in your life, you do not forget that major sin. Ammon's got to be remembering this rape of Tamar. Anytime he sees Absalom, he's going to remember it. Anytime he goes anywhere near that wing of the, her wing of the building, he, you know, the palace, he's going to, to uh, think about her. Anywhere here, time he goes near wherever she's housed, he's going to think about this. He probably thinks about it every time he sees a beautiful woman that he, that he falls in lust with, you know, and goes, I just, I had this problem already. He is, he is suffering. And people suffer when they have committed major sins. Whether we think about it or not, whether we know about it, they suffer. And there's a consequence to them. They know they didn't get away with it. They know that there's punishment. Ammon, every time he sees Absalom, knows that Absalom's angry at him and has to be wondering. Why he went to this party, I have no idea. You know, maybe it's been two years he forgot that Absalom's that mad at him. I can't believe that. I can't believe that. But for some reason, he goes to this party. Maybe David told him to. I don't know. But for some reason, he goes to this party and lets his guard down. If I was at this party and had been in his, his role, I would not have had my hand on my sword ready for anything at any moment, and I would not have lost my wits with alcohol because that is when you get into trouble. And we see here Jonadab. Who remembers Jonadab? Remember Jonadab from three weeks ago? He is the cousin, and he's the one that told Ammon to pretend to be sick so the king would send in Tamar and then pretend to be, be sick and, and be able to take, take her and all of that. It, he, he's a terrible man. All right? he, is, he is not a nice person. He is not, a, he is not the person who's supposed to be your best friend. And remember, that's what he's described as. He, his best friend is Abinadab, is Abinadab, his cousin, who talks him into setting up this rape in the first place. And now has obviously had some bit of planning in here because he's able to go to David and said, uh, don't think, you know, David, don't think that all your kids are dead. It's just Ammon. What is he saying? I knew this was happening and I, you know, probably helped plan this. He's the one that helped plan the, 
the getting Tamar into the room with him in the first place, he's probably been the one that's helped Absalom plan this murder. And he knew what was going to happen. Oh, he's doing all kinds of things. It's, he's just not a nice guy. He, royal family, I think he's probably causing havoc everywhere he goes. I mean, he's, remember the very first description was he's more subtle. Okay, he, he is the stirring of the pot. You know, he's the one that instigated what to happen with Tamar. And even though it doesn't say here, I have a feeling he had his fingers very much in this event. All right, because he knows about it. And he goes to David... If I had been David, I'd taken his head off right there, you know, because he knew, this means he knew about the plan as well. You know, he'd have been in the dungeon at the very least. Yeah, how would he know that the other Right, you know, how do you, how do you know the other kids have not been killed? Uh, but he did, you know, listen to what he says. Let not my lord suppose that they have all slain you, the young men of the king's son. He goes, don't, don't think they're all dead. Well, Only for ab. Ammon only is dead. For by the appointment of Absalom has this been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. You know, David, uh, the only one dead is Ammon, and this has been planned for two years. This has been in the plans for two years. So now, again, this is going to strike David at the heart even more. You know, okay, I didn't punish Ammon, so now it's my fault. You know, we know how we think. Yeah, how many times do we put on what our kids do, the, the wrong that our kids do upon ourselves? If I had just raised them better, if I had just disciplined them more, if I had just protected them more, if I had just, you know, put it in there. And every parent actually goes through this. I remember the day that I went through, you know, you know if I had, what if I had done just a few things differently with my, especially my oldest son who went, went, went crazy for a while. What if I had just done things? And I had to, and I had to come, with, come to grips with, you did the best you could, you made mistakes, and their decision is their decision. And this is where we as parents have to always come to. We do the best we can, and even if their best is terrible, and even if it's not the best I did, I, just, I really messed up, I can't go back and change it. I may be able to go back and apologize to my kids and maybe should apologize to my kids for the mistakes I made with them. But here we know what David's thinking. This is all my fault. And I know that's what he's thinking. I'm sure that's what he's thinking. If I had just, if I had just spent more time with the boys, maybe this wouldn't have happened. If I had just punished Ammon, this, is not, this would not have happened. If I had, if, if, if. If I hadn't slept with Bathsheba. If I hadn't, if I hadn't slept with Bathsheba and killed Uriah, then the curse wouldn't have happened and none of this would have happened. You know, we need to be very careful with our own life. We cannot go back into the past and say, if only. Because, number one, we might have made things worse if we had done something different in the first place. You know, there's a lot of parents who are too strict with their kids and drive them off. And I've seen that happen, especially with Christian parents. No, you can't do anything <laughs> and their kids get driven off. So even if you're doing everything right, your kids can still end up making bad decisions because it is their personal decision that has to come down. And we need to really understand this. When we're dealing with our kids, when we're dealing with our family, when we're dealing with workers, whatever it might be, it's their personal decisions to obey or disobey. 
Now we can set it up, we can make it easier for them or more difficult for them, but it is still their decision. You can be the most godly parent and have awful kids. All right? That can happen. And I've seen it happen. You know, I've seen people who are really godly, at least from the you know, at least from what we see of them. We don't know necessarily what they're like at home, but they appear to be godly people. They're they're prayer warriors and they honestly bring God into their house and their kids end up being awful because their kids just want to sin. And they look at it, mom and dad are just you know, want to force me into this Christian stuff and I don't want to have anything to do with it and, and I'm just going to go off and sin. We can also see kids from the worst possible parents doing everything wrong come out to be good kids because God has gotten hold of their heart and, and worked in their hearts. It can work both ways and it's not necessarily the parents' fault either way. David can't be feeling this way, but I know, I'm pretty sure he is. It doesn't say that he was, but I can, I can picture what he's going through. You know, he suspected it. He let Ammon go anyway. He didn't punish Ammon. He didn't punish Ammon. Uh, Absalom, uh, Ammon, so Absalom's bad. He, all these things. And now Shimeo, uh, uh, Jonadab kind of plays into them, sticks the knife in David's heart even further. This has been planned since the day of the rape. The day that he raped her, this has been in Absalom's planning. You know, okay, David, see, if you'd have just taken care of it, you know, if you'd just taken care of it, David, this, uh, this would never have happened. Nice guy. Nice guy. My wonderful friend, wonderful best friend for, for Ammon, uh, for Absalom. Uh, but this also tells us we need to be careful with who our best friends are. You know, it is one thing, you do not want to totally isolate the lost world, because if you totally isolate the lost world from you, you have nobody to witness to. Okay, and this is a problem. The longer you're a Christian, the more isolated you get from, from the world. The more you hang out with Christians at church, the more you, the, the more you know people that are, that are godly, and the less you hang out with the people. And that is an automatic that happens. And I've shared this with you. If I didn't go to the prison, I'd never have anybody to witness to because I come to church. Okay? Uh, now, I can witness to the people at church, but most of the people that come to our church, at least by their testimony, know Jesus. We need to be out in the world, but we need to make sure that the world is not our best friend. When, we, when we're looking for counsel, the world is not where we want to go to counsel. We get a, if we go to the world to get a counsel, we get, so we get a, a Jonadab giving us all the wrong advice, egging us on into wrong decisions. And we've all been there at some point. You know, and I can remember a day that I was at a meeting with other managers and they're all trying to get me to take a drink. Oh, come on, one drink's not gonna hurt you. you know, you know, you know, all these things that are going on, I'm going, no, I have no interest in a drink. I don't want to have any. So we have this point. And like I said, if I had been David, been, uh, Jonadab probably would have been thrown into, into, the, into the prison because he knew that this was happening, didn't sound any alarms, didn't, didn't warn anybody. And David probably understands his personality. Right? He probably knows that he helped work this out set this in plan, set the stage for this. And then he goes in verse 3, Now therefore let not my lord the king take this thing to heart to think that all the king's sons are dead for Ammon only is dead. So he says it twice, only Ammon's dead. Okay, I know what your report is, I know what you've heard, but only Ammon is dead. Now this is, this is supposed to make David feel better. Now, by the way, David, only one of your kids is dead. Yeah. Now, don't worry about it. It's just one of them. 
you know, I don't understand Jonadab's attitude on this. You know, obviously he believes that Ammon deserves this punishment, but you know, Ammon is a bit. Jonadab is Ammon's friend. Okay, at the very beginning of this, it said that he was his best friend. Now he's working with Absalom. How many people do we know that that, that you know have stirred the pot? Doesn't matter what side they're stirring it on. They just have to make everybody angry. Everybody has to be upset. You know, I've seen people like this that if everybody, you know, I had employees like this. Everything's going along smooth. Everything's working just What is your problem? Why? Everything was going good until you had to say stupid things. And this is Jonadab. He's Ammon's friend, and he knows about this plot to kill him. And seems to be part of it to be able to, to go into this. You know, what kind of man is, is Jonadab? I don't, you know, says that he's subtle, but, you know, I can picture he's one of those that is just, you know, yeah, okay. He's very much playing the role of Satan in here. Playing both sides of the sides of the coin, but he does just what Satan does. Satan will come along and tempt us. And he'll say, Well, if you do this, God will forgive you. God God will God won't care. You'll you'll still go to heaven if you if you make this sin. And then as soon as we commit the sin, what does he do? What an awful terrible person you are. How could you dare to do that? God will never forgive you for doing for doing such a thing. You know, that is the role of Satan. This is what Jonadab is doing. He is playing the role of Satan. I'm not saying he's possessed, but he is definitely not a good man. He is close to following Satan as you possibly can get. And, you know, he's playing that role. You know, hey, Ammon, just, just pretend you're sick. Get your sister in here. Get the opportunity. Make the opportunity. David, you know, bring Bathsheba into your, into your room and... and then be surprised when you're sleeping with her. I really do believe David had not intended to sleep with her when he called her up there necessarily. He just wanted to gaze at her beauty in his own personal room with no attendance. Yeah. Did, and just asking for trouble. But you know, we do this kind of thing sometimes. We, we set up the stage for falling into a sin and then wonder how we fell into the sin. Right. It's, yeah, I just want to, you know, I just want to look at this beautiful woman a little closer. I know she's married to one of my warriors, and she's married. I just want to, I just want to gaze at her. We'll, we'll have dinner. You know, we'll have dinner in my room, alone. But you know, again, as I say, though, how many times have we done things like that? We have walked the line. I don't plan to do this, but I'm, I'm going to get as close to the line as I possibly can. I don't plan to sin. And the next thing you know, we've sinned. I'm not sure that David had a full intention at all of, of sinning when he did that. I'm not sure that Ammon had the intention of sleeping with his, his sister when he called her in. Now, he did when he sent everybody away. He did, you know, after, you know, after a while. But again, did he intend to from the beginning? I don't know. I don't know his heart. I don't know his mind. I do know that most people, when they sin, do not go in planning to sin. It just isn't the way most sin. Now, I do know what happens. 
Okay, I do know that people do go into sin. I've done it on occasion myself. I am just going to commit this sin. God, I know you're telling me not to, but I want to, make, I want to commit this sin, and there's no fun in that, in that sin. So either one of them could have been premeditated. Absalom's murder of Ammon is definitely premeditated because Jonadab says so. Hey, this, has been in the, this has been appointed since the day that he did this. But you know, and I keep thinking back to ourselves, how many times do we you know, find ourselves crossing the line? Now we tiptoe with it, we do everything we shouldn't have done to, to avoid, you know, that if we really wanted to avoid the sin, we should have been nowhere near it. And as I've said many times, you know, it's not how close I can get to the sin before I sin, it's how far can I stay away from the sin. You know, you know if I don't want to commit adultery, I should not be with somebody alone. That's not my spouse. I should not put that, put that into even, even being in the same place alone. Especially if you're attracted to that person, don't be in that, in that room alone. And it's still not wise even if you're not attracted because who knows what could eventually happen. Because you don't know if they're attracted. <laughs> and, you know, and this is something that happens. And I've talked many times, these evangelists that fall to adultery, I really truly believe that there's not a one of them that really said in their heart, I just want to go on and commit adultery today. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to commit adultery with one of, my, one of, my, one of the, the women in my church. I'm just going to pick one and we're going to have adultery. I don't believe that's what happened to them. It was the, they got together in a place one-on-one -on -one where they shouldn't have been. They were probably at a bad place in their marriage, feeling sorry for themselves at that moment. That person gave them a little bit of a positive attention. And the next thing you know, they've had dinner, they've you know, been, been cozy together, and the next thing you know, they are sleeping together. And then as you get more and more of those, you know, it's easier and easier to commit the sin once you've, once you've crossed the line. So yes, for those who've had many, it just, they got to where they did plan it because they felt entitled to it and whatever logic they use. But usually that first sin is not an intended sin. The first drink is not usually, I'm, I'm going to go out and I'm going to drink with my buddies today. You usually go to the party, and I've heard the stories and the testimonies over and over. Have you tried this? Have you, have you tried this pot? Have you tried this drink? Have you, have you tried, oh no, maybe, you know. And the next thing you know, it's part of your lifestyle. You know, but that first one usually isn't a, why do you think I'm going to go out and drink with my buddies tonight? And I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I go, you know how you start down the path to alcohol and drugs. It's usually you go to a party where others are doing it and if it be part of the group, you just do it. And he's like, well, I have nothing to lose. Let me try it. Everybody else is doing it. It's not a big deal. And next thing you know, you're wrapped up in that sin. And it gets easier and easier and easier. And then there, then there comes that time when I'm, I'm living to get drunk. You know, I'm living to go have that party. I'm living to go get stoned. I'm living to have this in because it's just part of my life. And that can happen with any sin. You know, whether it's alcohol, drugs, theft, adultery, fornication, all of those things can become part of our lifestyle if we just keep doing it and forget the consequences. And here, the consequences were major for Ammon. You know, uh, verse 34. But Ammon fled, and the young man that kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there came much people by the way of the hillside behind him. 
And Jonadab said unto King David, unto the king, Behold, your king's sons come, as your servant said, so is it. And it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end to speaking, that behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voices and wept. And the king also and, and all the servants wept very sore. So here come the sons. Now, I don't know how the news got there before the sons did. They left first, and then the, the news got there. The one thing we do know, news has always traveled fast. Even before radios and telegraphs and telephones and, and satellite dishes, news has traveled fast. And that news got to David before his sons got there. Somebody on a horse probably as opposed to the, to the mules. And, you know, having said this, do you know why they were riding mules? Do, do you do we remember, we've talked about this at various points, why, why would the king's sons be riding a mule? It meant peace. It meant peace. The, the king or the sons, royalty, majesty, horses were war animals. The, the mules were peaceful animals. And oftentimes the royalty would use a horse, would use a mule. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, he was coming in peace. I'm entering as the king into Jerusalem as a peaceful ruler. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem the next time, what, what is he riding? A white horse, according to Revelation. When he comes down, he's riding a white horse. And the white horse means I'm coming in victory and as a conqueror. I'm, when Jesus comes back, he is no longer the mild, meek lamb of God. He is the Lion of Judah coming as a warrior and a general and a conqueror. He came to earth the first time meek, mild, showing the loving side of God, sacrificing his life. When he comes back, he's coming back as a warrior and saying, it is over. No more, no more Mr. Nice Guy. I told you. you know, no more Mr. Nice Guy. He's still going to be loving. He's still going to be kind. But his strength and his power is what is going to be revealed. In Revelation 8, it starts out that there was a silence in heaven for a half hour. And from that point on, you see Jesus as the Lion of Judah, the conqueror. And there's a pregnant pause in heaven during the tribulation period where he stops being the Lamb of God. Before that, he was seen as the Lamb. He's breaking the seals as the lamb. After that point, he comes as conqueror and all of, all of the power of heaven and, and the judgment of God starts pouring out on earth and he is no longer the lamb of God. He is the conqueror of God. He's the ruler and he is the righteous king and that's how he's seen from that point on. You know, what a, what a switch. A quiet time in heaven as this very big change happens. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world becomes the lion of Judah. You want to be here. You want to be on the right side. But even then, when he comes back, he's protecting Israel. And he's protecting those who have become Christians during that period of time. Because remember, during the tribulation period, you have 144,000 Jewish evangelists witnessing to the world. At another point, you have an angel in the, in the skies declaring to turn to God, repent. 
So people are getting saved during the tribulation period and they have to pay with their lives and they're the ones that are going to enter into the millennial kingdom. At the end of the seven years of tribulation, we come back with them, but we have our glorified bodies. We were raptured. We have our glorified bodies. During the millennial kingdom, we cannot sin because we are now perfect. And we have made our decision to follow him and we, have, we are now have our glorified bodies. During the millennial kingdom, everybody who lived with taking the mark of the beast enters into the thousand year reign of Christ and repopulate the world over that thousand years they still have their human bodies they still have their sin nature now he's going to rule with an iron rod it is going to be as close to perfection as possible with sin nature involved and I've talked about this I really truly believe that we talk about the thought police you know we've got the ultimate thought police Jesus knowing that they're getting ready to sin, saying, no, you're not going to sin. This is now my kingdom. This is a righteous kingdom. You aren't going to sin, which is why Satan can raise an army up after the, at the end of a thousand years when he's let loose. There are a lot of people that want to rebel. They want to sin. And they have not been allowed to sin. And they're going to, re, they're going to turn against God one more time. You know, Adam and Eve proved that even being made created perfect where they could not live perfect lives and what does our world say if we just had a perfect environment everything would be okay so the thousand year reign of Christ is going to be a perfect environment and people are still going to sin at the end of it a thousand years of reigning with God and being ruled by God and they will still desire to sin at the end of that time Proving, proving Satan's last big lie. You know, hey, you know, if, if everything was just perfect, you wouldn't sin. Well, you know, it was perfect in the Garden of Eden. They sinned, and they, had, they didn't even have a sin nature to lead them into sin. At the end of the Millennial Kingdom, they have a sin nature to want to sin, and, and having lived in a perfect life, will still sin. To disprove all of Satan's lies. Every time man comes up with an idea, God will say, okay, let me show you that what you believe is wrong. You think if you just had everything all perfect and hunky-dory that you would, you'd live a perfect life? thousand-year reign of Christ is going to show that that's not a true statement. And going back to Adam and Eve, it wasn't a true statement. They didn't even have a sin nature to sin. You know, God says, you must turn to me. I'm the only one that can keep you from sin. And this is why when he fills us, he changes who we are. He indwells us. And that's where the true baptism that we have. When we do a water baptism, we do the outward, this is what I'm changed, I'm, I'm changing. But God comes inside us, baptizes us inside him, submerges us in him. The only thing indifferent in our body is he doesn't let us come up. He just keeps us submerged in him. And just as we've said, when something is submerged in something, it becomes like what it's submerged in. And the idea we've talked about, pickles. What does the vegetable do to become a pickle? Stays in the vinegar. All right? If the, if the vegetable got just jumped out of the jar and say, I'm not staying in this vinegar, it would stay a vegetable and would actually rot, but it would, it would stay a vegetable until somebody ate it or it rotted away. Going into the vinegar, staying in the vinegar, it becomes a pickle. And that pickle technically can stay out of the, once it's taken and pickled, it can stay out of the jar without going bad because of all the vinegar and everything in it. It would stay healthy for a long time. God does that to us. 
He baptizes us. He puts us in himself. And slowly, we become more like him. We become a pickle. <laughs> only, only it's the Holy Spirit that's pickling us. And we're becoming more like God. And this is how we, get, we live. This is why I tell people, when they say, well, I'm trying hard to live the Christian life, I will literally tell them, quit trying. Let God crucify your flesh, stay in God, and let him change who you are. And I've said it over and over. It is easy to live the Christian life if you just surrender. You let him crucify you, you stay baptized in him, and you become more like him. And then over time, you look back and say, wow, I'm changing. I no longer act the same way I did five years ago, 10 years ago, last week, <laughs> you know, a decade ago, 20, you know, 20 years ago. You know, I'm kinder, I'm nicer, I'm, I'm more patient, I'm more loving. Why? Because God is making you more like him. Now, the ultimate will be when we die or we are raptured and he says, okay, now you are made glorified. You are made who I said you're going to be. Until then, it's a slow process of sanctification. I become more like him every day. And here we see this whole process. They're all crying. They're all, they're all walk, uh, going their way. And it said here in, that, in verse 34 that Absalom fled. I don't think Absalom is thinking that David's going to be as kind to him as he was to Ammon. Right? Ammon just took the virginity away from Tamar. Bad. You know, but in David's mind, that was all. His daughter's still alive. His daughter's you know, no longer marryable in their, in, their, in their environment. You know, but in that day and age, unfortunately, women weren't looked on very, very importantly. You know, she was a piece of property. Eventually, he was going to give her away to some prince of some land to, be, to make a royal, royal alliance someplace, and that was her destiny. Her destiny was to go to some foreign land to be the princess in charge of that, you know, married to some prince or king of that, of another land. Now she's not eligible for that. David, okay, you know, not saying it's good. I'm not saying it was right. The law doesn't say it's right. I mean, the law said that there was a consequence and David ignored that. Absalom's murdered his brother. He doesn't seem so sure that David is going to ignore that one. All right, he flees. Verse 37. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, the king of Gersher, and David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Gersher and was there for three years. And the soul of King David longed to go forth to Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Ammon, seeing he was dead. All right, Absalom runs away. He leaves Israel. He leaves and he runs to Talmai, the son of Amminadab, the king of Gershur. Does anybody have any idea who this person is? If we go back to 2 Samuel 3, at verse 3, and the second son... Gileab of Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmite, and the third was Absalom, the son of Machah, the daughter of Talmud, king of Gershom. Who did he go to? He ran to Grandpa. Dad's mad at me. <laughs> uh, 
Dad's mad at me. I'm going to run to Grandpa. Grandpa will protect me. So he has gone to see Grandpa. Uh, Grandpa will protect me. Grandpa will keep me. Grandpa will give me a give me a place to stay. It will keep me from going, uh, being turned over to David. Grandpa was Gersha, the king of Gersha. Talmai, the, the king of Gershma. Uh, Gersher, rather. So Absalom runs and says, well, I know David won't attack Grandpa. And I'm going to be safe here. I'm sure Grandpa will keep me. What, what confidence that he has. But, you know, he's running over to some place. By the time he tells, you know, tells Grandpa, you know, hey, I killed this guy because he raped, you know, raped your granddaughter granddaughter and David, you know, King David, you know, and dad didn't do anything about it. Probably a safe bet that grandpa is going to say, okay, you can stay. All right. Yeah. Okay. My granddaughter has been raped and, the, and nothing happened to him. Yeah. You can stay. Uh, probably just because he's not an Israelite. He's not under the same laws as Israel. And remember, Israel at this time is under an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The rest of the world is not under that rule. The rest of the world is still under, you hurt me, I can do whatever I want back to you. And we, like I've said so many times, we look at an eye for an eye and say, wow, what an awful thing, you know, somebody hurts you, you know, do equal damage. The world looked at Israel and said, you guys are a bunch of wimps. You know, that guy stole from you and all you did was, you know, take your stuff back. That guy in the fight broke your arm and all you can do is break his arm. You deserved it right in and take all of his stuff and kill his family and take everything he owns because he hurt you. That was the mentality there. So when Absalom runs to, to Grandpa, Grandpa's mentality is Ammon got what he deserved. You know, he, he's lucky that's all you did. He's lucky you didn't take, every, you know, take all of his possessions and all of his servants and everything. You know, all you did was take his life. He, he got what he deserves and you, you let him off pretty easy. That's, grandpa's, that's going to be Grandpa's attitude. Even though it doesn't say that, that is his, that's how he's going to think. Because only the Jewish people are under this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth rule. And they really are looked like at, as what wimps you guys are. You guys don't make somebody pay for what they do to you. And what does Jesus do with Christians? I tell you, don't seek revenge at all. Forgive them. Love them. Christians have been looked at as being wimps by the world for a long time because even though an eye for an eye is kind of the, the general attitude of the world, mostly, there's still people that are in that world, but the idea of forgiving somebody when they hurt you, you know, the world looks at that and says, you guys are weird. How can you forgive somebody who hurts you like that? We as Christians are looked at if we act the way we are supposed to before God and we forgive those who hurt us and we put it in his hands to defend us, we looked at it, you know, uh, how could you guys, I don't, we don't understand that. You guys are setting yourselves up to be abused all the time because you're not willing to stand up for yourself. You know, just as the Jews were looked at. You guys, you know, you're really not standing up for yourself. You're, you guys are just asking to be taken advantage of. We as Christians have that same people, you know, looking at us. And sometimes we are taken advantage of if we're following God. But, you know, when we trust God... God never lets his children get hurt without a consequence following. There's always a consequence that follows when somebody harms one of God's children. Now, it may be several years down the road. It might be decades down the road. It might be at the white throne judgment when God says, you hurt my child, now you're going to go to hell. And you never, and you never repented. It really doesn't, because that's what Paul said. I've learned to be content in this world. Why? 
because what is anything that happens to me on this world in comparison to eternity? The reward we have in eternity, even if we threw as close to hell as we could go through on this world as one of God's children, and we have a miserable life. Paul had a pretty miserable life. Yes, he had some high points. Yes, he had some good things, but being by snakes, he's being, he's being uh, stoned, he's being chased out of town, probably as close to tar and feathering as, as they would come in their day. And he's saying, all of these bad things are just a small thing. Just a small thing when I consider eternity. Our attitude really needs to be, God, I have eternity to spend with you. What does it matter what I go through on this world? Now, I'm not saying it's an easy, easy decision. It takes growth into that, but it really takes me looking at what's coming. What is coming in the future? When I die and I go to heaven on this world, I'm a servant. The servant does not rest while there's work to be done. Jesus said that, you know, he goes, the master works with in the field and he comes in and the servant's hungry. He doesn't say to the servant, well, you go eat and then you can feed me. He says, feed me and then you can wash up and, and feed yourself. We are God's servants on this world. He is not expecting us to live a life of ease. He is not expecting us to say, well, God, you know, I, I shared with two people this, this last month. I, I'm, I'm done. God, I shared with two people this decade. I, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't need to talk to anybody more. I, I, I've served you. God says, uh-uh. <laughs> That's not why you're down there. That is not why you're there. Yeah. And we need to be able to understand what's going on. Knowing that what we want to hear from him is, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your reward. And he'll reward us. He's building us suites of rooms in the, in the palace, in the New Jerusalem. They say mansions, but you know we've talked about that. Mansions in that language literally just means suites of rooms. And what is he going to do for each one? How big is your suite going to be? Is going to depend on how well you've served him or how well you've let him work through you. Some people are just going to have really small, you know, little studio apartments, barely, barely, barely furnished. Some people will have huge suites because of what they've allowed God to work through them. And don't think your superstar Christians are going to have the big places because they may or may not. God expects you to use what he gives you. If he's only given you one talent and you use it 100% of the time, and 100%, you're going to be more rewarded than the person who had 10 or 20 talents but only used one or two of them. And then you only use those part of the time. And even if they were good, you know, we look sometimes at pastors and say, wow, this pastor's got such a big church and look at all the ministries they're doing. And God may be looking at them and saying, I'm not as impressed with them as I am with this other person. Who got the blessing when Jesus saw the widow's might? Jesus said, look at all those people. They gave all out of their abundance. They're not even missing what, they're, what, they're, what they gave. They're just giving God their extra. You know, and yeah, it was good and God could use it, but they were just saying, yeah, it's not even a sacrifice. She gave everything she had. And I said this before, when I get to heaven, I want to talk to the widow. I want to see what the rest of the story was. I really want to know what happened to you after you gave your, the last of your money. Because I do not believe she went home and died. I don't believe that. I mean, that may be the rest of the story, but I don't believe that God took and used her for an example and said, okay, now she gave everything, we're going to take her home. Now, that's a great blessing. 
to go home, but I really do believe God provided a meal for her and a place for her, and I'd love to see what the rest of the story was. But even then, even somebody serving God may not look like they're going very far, but the God's blessing is going to be different because my goal is to serve God. Right, and that's the key thing. It may seem like they're doing better. It may seem that we're not going anywhere. I don't know how many times my kind word to somebody helped them and maybe somebody listening to them saying, okay, that's how a Christian is supposed to act and changes their life. We never know what's going to happen. And this is why I say when we're in heaven, some of the things we think we're going to be rewarded for are going to burn up. Because I did it. It's my flesh, my, my work. Some of the things that I didn't think I touched anybody's life are going to come out with precious gems and jewels and God's going to say, here it is. That time that you were just nice to that person, here, here's your reward for just being nice. I know you wanted to kill them. I know you wanted to tear them limb from limb. But you were, you were nice to them and you honored me. You know, you were, you gave to that person when they didn't deserve it. And hopefully everybody has got some rewards. Now, the thief on the cross, he went to heaven with no reward because he didn't have a chance to get any rewards. But having said that, he may have had reward because what did he do? He rebuked the other thief. You know, don't you have any fear for God? He, we are getting what we deserve. He is innocent. He probably got a reward just for that statement because it got recorded in the scriptures and has been used yeah. through the centuries to, to minister to people. So having even said that he didn't get a reward, I don't know that he didn't get a reward. Not a whole lot. He didn't have a whole lot of reward, but he got something. He got something. How much do we get? We don't know. And I'm looking forward when we get to heaven to see, God, what, what is there? What, what rewards do you have just because I have lived for you at times when I wasn't even aware that I was living for you. I've been told by people who go, you have, you have edified or built me up so much in just these few minutes. And I wasn't trying to, I was just talking. I was just living God before them. People go, you, you've touched me, you've built me up. It wasn't me purposely, oh, God, God who, who can I build up today? <laughs> it's just God living through us. And those are where our rewards are going to come. God living through us. Absalom is not willing to even seek re repentance and everything. He runs. He runs to Grandpa. And David's reaction is he weeps for Absalom. He loves Absalom. Even though Absalom has murdered Ammon, on the one side he probably thinks that, you know, Ammon deserved it. I can understand. I and David may have been thinking I would have done the same thing myself and if I was in his place. I'd have, I'd have killed my brother for raping my sister mentality. You know, we don't know what David was thinking, but he's mourning Absalom and weeping for him. And we see this problem that he's going to have. That, you know, and we look at David, and as good a king as David was, and as godly a man as David was in many places, he was a very weak man. He was a lousy father. All of his kids go bad. He's... He's not, he's not a very good father. He's a great warrior. He's a great general. He's usually a good king. <laughs> but he also has sin in his life, which just shows us. And I love the fact that David is called a man after God's heart because it just shows that God will use us. Because most of us aren't murderers and adulterers. You know, we may have other sins in our lives, but most of us aren't murderers and adulterers. 
But even if we were, God could still use us just as he did David. And that gives us great confidence before God. And I love hearing people's testimonies when, when they're really deep in sin and God gets them saved and they become a new creation and all of a sudden their testimony is, you know, God changed me, he can change you. You know, when I tell people God can change you, it doesn't come as, as much as a big impact because I don't have a long list of sins that I have done. I got saved when I was 10 years old. If God had not saved me, I'd have a long list of sins because my dad was an alcoholic and I know I would have gotten an alcohol. I was an angry person. I would have, I would have done some very serious crimes. You know, and who knows where else I would have gone. But God got hold of me at an early age. And I can look and say, if that hadn't happened, I know where I was headed. Okay? I hadn't crossed the line anywhere, but I know where I was headed. God changed me. And I can tell people that God can change you. Now, and, you know, and I know that I've, you know, and I've shared with you, and I went up to one time and go, you know, I, I, I kind of envy your testimony because all these bad things, and they stopped me in my tracks and said, don't ever, don't ever be sad that you lived the life because every one of us that lived this life and use it as a testimony, we're happy to use it as a testimony but we would have gladly changed our ways if we could have gotten saved at eight, nine, ten years old and not had to go through heartache. Because yes, there's consequences to it. There's pain, there's scars. Even when God comes in and uses it to witness, there's scars. And I do thank God. I've, that person really helped me say, thank you, God. I do not have the scars that go along. in spite of it. And he'll use each one of us. There are people that I can talk to that others can't talk to. You know, there's others that I can't talk to. They're just not going to listen to me. And that's fine. That's why God gives the people with the big, big testimonies <laughs> to be able to talk to them. God can change them. Hey, God changed me. He can change you. You know, I know you don't believe the, the guy who, who seems to have his life together. You know, you know, God could change him because I also understand my sin was bad. All sin is evil before God and worthy of hell. Now, the lost world doesn't see it that way, and I understand that. Later on, they will understand that, yes, all that sin was sin. And it's very important for us to be able to say, wherever God stops us, it was a lot worse it could have been. A lot worse it could have been. Even if we were at the bottom of the barrel, you know, on Skid Row with no home, you know, with our health totally destroyed, we could have been dead in our sins. You know, and given another couple of years, we might have been dead in our sins. So wherever God changes us, we have a testimony that it could have gotten worse. And this is why Absalom runs, and David is sorry that Absalom's running. And he might also be sorry that he would have to punish Absalom if he shows back up, but he is weeping for Absalom. And you know, you gotta think, how how does other sons take that? You know, okay. You didn't punish Ammon when he, when he sinned. Absalom's running, and now you're sorry that Absalom's running. You know, David, what is wrong with you? But David has a tender heart. His heart is tender because he knows what a sinner he is. And I think because of that, he is being too gracious toward his kids and not giving them consequences. And this can happen for a lot of parents. You know, I can't punish my son because my son or daughter, they're just doing what I did. Well, we can't let that be an excuse for sinning. Okay, son or daughter, I know that I was a lousy example. I know that I was a bad, but we're now a Christian. We want you to live righteous, and I don't want you to have to suffer 
where I have, and therefore we're going to give you consequences for your disobedience, in spite of the fact that you're just doing what I did. You know, there has to be that point where we say there's consequences. And just go before God and say, God, help me to be a good, godly father or mother and be able to bring God into the situation and draw them to God. And so we're going to end here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you. Lord, help us to always remember who we are in you, that we have a testimony. And Lord, always remember that all sin has consequence and that you are the distributor of grace and mercy at times, but there is still the consequence. Help us to reach out to others and share you with them. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.